Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're going to be talking about 1998, the music of 1998. What albums do you remember from that year? What are your favorite albums of that year? I turned 21 in 1998. I was a wee lad in college. That would have been my junior year. I guess it would have been... Well, my sophomore into junior year of college in 1998. You know, when I think back to that year, I think of it as a year where the 90s ended. You know, I mean, I feel like when we talk about decades, a lot of times, you know, decades don't really start at the beginning. You know, like when when we talk about the 60s, for instance, the 60s as we remember them in our cultural memory, you know, they really begin in like 1967, you know, or the 70s, they begin in like 1977 or so. It takes a while for decades to get an identity. In a way, though, I feel like the 90s ended before the decade actually ended. You know, because when we think about the 90s, from a music perspective, you think about alternative rock and grunge, and you think about gangster rap. You know, I know for me as a kid in 1991, 92, that was the music that dominated my middle school. You know, and when people make movies about the 90s, that's the kind of music that they reference. That's the shorthand. But by 98, you you see the beginnings of the end of that. You know, Nirvana, of course, was long gone. Soundgarden had broken up. Pearl Jam was around, but sort of in a state of flux, you know, not as popular as they once were. Alice in Chains was really starting to kind of drift away into the ether at that point. You know, Lane Staley was succumbing to heroin addiction. So a lot of that stuff wasn't happening. And you had this sort of sea of bubble grunge bands coming out. Bands like uh, Marcy Playground and Eve Six and, uh, you know, the Goo Goo Dolls, who had been around before, but, you know, they had become this very slick mainstream band in 98. You also saw the beginnings of sort of like recognizable indie rock, you know, or the indie rock that we associate with the end of that decade going into the 2000s, that's starting to become a big deal. Of course, Neutral Milk Hotel being the most obvious example, but Elliott Smith also being big that year. So it's a fascinating time. It's a, it's a great year to talk about. And, uh, you know, I wanted to delve into, you know, favorite albums, I guess most emblematic albums of that year, albums that are underrated, maybe overrated albums as well. Um, and in order to get to the bottom of this topic, I invited a, a writer I like a lot. Her name is Judy Berman. You've probably have seen her writing in places like Pitchfork and the New York Times. Uh, she's written for the Atlantic, Huffington Post. She's written for a bunch of places. And uh, we get into it. We talk about 1998, and we had a really good conversation about it. So I'm excited to get to that. But before we do, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week, and it is our old friends at Harry's. Now, of course, I use razors all the time. i got to keep my beard looking good. got to stay sharp. Don't want to look like a grizzly man. And I found that Harry's is a great way to go because buying razors is a pain. You know, they cost a lot of money. you got to go to the drugstore. It's a big hassle. And Harry's, they bring you a great product, and they bring it right to your door. You have these razors, and you don't even have to think about it. And uh, I have a special offer for my listeners uh, who, uh, you know, if you guys want to get into shaving your face with a good product, this is a great deal for you. It's a $13 value trial set, and you're going to get everything in this set that you're going to need. You're going to get your weighted ergonomic handle. You're going to get your five-blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade. You're going to get the rich lathering shave gel, and you're going to get my favorite thing, and it's a favorite of Derek's as well, the travel blade cover. We both love the travel blade cover. So if you want to get this deal, you want to go to harrys.com backslash rock. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock to get your trial offer set from Harry's. It's a great way to shave your face and a great way to support this podcast. Okay, so 1998, we got into it. You know, this podcast, by the way, was inspired by a list that Pitchfork did in February. They did a list of the top 50 albums of 1998. And 
I would have done a podcast on this then, but we were doing the Springsteen series. So I had to wait a little bit. But, you know, it's an evergreen topic. At least it's, it's evergreen for the entirety of 2018. And you know, we have the 20th anniversary <laughs> thing to talk about. So I figured this was a great time to do it. So I called up Judy and we talked about it. We got into 98. So without further ado, here's me and Judy Berman talking about the albums of 1998. So Judy, I was saying in my introduction that when I think about 1998, I tend to think of it as, I guess, the, the end of what we think of as the 90s. Like when you think about the 90s, a lot of times you think about like alternative rock and grunge rock and gangster rap, music like that. I know for me, like when I think mm-hmm. about my, my middle school years in the early 90s, that's the music I think of. And in 98, it seemed like a lot of that stuff was starting to peter out. And on the rock side, you know, I, I think of the band Hole, for instance. Like in 1994, Hole puts out Live Through This, which is a very sort of quintessential early 90s rock record, you know, very sort of abrasive, angry, you know, kind of a grungy type record. And then in 98, you know, they released their first record in four years, Celebrity Skin, which is a very sort of lush record, a slick record. You know, mm-hmm. that idea of being embarrassed uh, about being influenced by 70s rock, you know, which you had in the early 90s, that was gone by the late 90s. Like, Courtney Love could not just be influenced by Fleetwood Mac, she could actually make a record that sounded like Fleetwood Mac at that point in 98. So that's what it is for me, and I was talking about that in the intro. I'm wondering, like, for you, like, does any of that sort of square with how you see that year? And if not, like, what are, I guess what is the narrative of that year for you when you look back? Um, I mean, definitely, I think it was, a transitional year. Um, I think a lot of these alternative artists, uh, like Hole, um, like Garbage, um, bands like that were still around and still making good albums. But I think, you know, this sort of like raw sound, um, of the early nineties wasn't, um, in vogue anymore. It was starting to feel kind of old. Um, and people, we're just grasping onto new sounds. I think, um, you know, the seventies thing, um, was a total transformation for whole, um, for, for garbage and a lot of other rock bands. I think they started experimenting, um, with electronic music, which obviously, um, around the turn of the millennium was, I guess, almost as big as it is, now yeah. um, and then it faded away for a while yeah and that idea too i think of like selling out or that you have to that you can't sound too commercial which again was a very sort of overbearing idea in the early 90s that seemed to be mm-hmm. totally gone by 98 and you mentioned you know some of those those bands you know whole garbage um and there was also a whole slew of i guess lesser known bands that were making radio hits at that time i guess the goo goo dolls would be a big example maybe mm-hmm. of you know, having no shame about making unabashed mainstream music designed to be played on the radio to sell a lot of records. I mean, you could, mm-hmm. the bands that were still being classified as alternative rock in 98 were also heading in that direction. And really, the whole idea of, I guess, alternative even being a recognizable thing, I feel like that finally got put to bed at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... You got more, I think in the early 90s, alternative bands, you thought of them as kind of album bands. If you liked Nirvana or you liked Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains, um, you know, you, you thought of them in terms of albums, I think, more than singles, whereas the alternative bands that um, emerged in the late 90s were, in many cases, sort of one-hit wonders. Um, there were a lot of kind of novelty songs. Um, you know, it sort of alternative became a sort of style of pop rather than, I don't know, an ethos or, um, you know, this, this great, um, inheritor of, of classic rock and punk. Right. Totally. Now this podcast episode was inspired by the list that Pitchfork did, I guess now a couple of months ago on, they did a list of the 50 best records of 1998. And mm-hmm. I didn't do an episode on it then because we were doing a big Bruce Springsteen series at that time. So I couldn't get to it. So I had to wait. Although I, I think I asked you 
like that. I, I asked you like a month and a half ago if you would come on yeah, the podcast. Yeah. So this has been on the back burner for a while for us to talk. <laughs> I'm glad we're finally doing it. Um, I was just looking at the list now, you know, sort of like the top five or six records. And, you know, number one, there's Outcast Equemini. After that, you have Lauren Hill's The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Then Elliot Smith's XO, which is kind of a weird pick for me. I love Elliot Smith. I always felt like XO was like a slight come down from the first three records. Like for me, either or is like the epitome of Elliot Smith, I think, still, which came up yeah, the, the I, previous I liked, year. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's hard for me to think of a weak Elliot Smith album, um, but I would say, you know, it's, I, I think we're at a point with Elliot Smith where um, his legacy has kind of um, outgrown what people were feeling about his albums at the time. How do you mean? Um, I mean, I think... I think that he was um, an incredible musician, but I think there's, there's a sentiment, sentimentality um, attached to the way we hear his music now, you know, we think about this terrible end to his life. Um, and it kind of, you know, it, it fuels the way we listen to his music. Right. When he had that underground hero thing at the time as well, that he Mm -hmm. was, you know, like, I guess the year after this, I think it was, was it 98 or 99 when he was on the Oscars? I think, I think maybe it was 98 because he was up Um, against Celine Dion yeah, the Titanic song. Yeah, Titanic. It was yeah, and so you know that was a big deal for him. And I, I'm thinking that was probably before EXO came out. I mean, I feel like EXO mm-hmm. was sort of like his big, sort of mainstream move because he was in um, Gus Van Zant used a bunch of his songs in Goodwill Hunting right. in '97, and that was that was the first time I heard him. Like my friends had the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack, and then that led <laughs> you to. Either or and the the first two records, and then oh, that's so, amazing! Yeah, um, my first real concert I think was in 1997, um, and I was 13, um, and it was back Ben Folds Five and Elliot Smith, but I didn't hear Elliot Smith at all because I had never heard of him. Oh and, man! Yeah, it's um, it's one bill. of the great regrets of my life, um, but. Uh, but yeah, it was, um, it was definitely a time when he was sort of entering the mainstream, um, and, and didn't seem, um, entirely enthused about it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And that was sort of, again, part of his appeal that he could be on the Oscars and look like this very shy, uh, you know, out of place person. And he's going up against Celine Dion. I mean, in a way, you had a similar thing this year at the Oscars where, uh, you know, you had like the great showman song and then you had uh, Sufjan Stevens there. Right. Again, like grand spectacle on one side and this sort of quiet uh, indie hero on the other. And I forget, like, did the great showman song win? Uh, I think. uh, I can't remember who won. No, it was the song from Coco. Oh, right. Okay. Okay, because I, I just remember watching the show, the great showman song just like brought down the house. It just seemed like mm-hmm. that killed. Uh, and, I mean, that's a whole other ball of wax. Anyway, that, that whole thing. Let's get back to this list. Number four on the Pitchfork list was Neutral Milk Hotels in the Aeroplane, in the aeroplane Over the Sea, and I have a feeling we're going to talk about that later in this episode, so we'll leave that there for now. Number five was the Boards of Canada record, Music has the right to children. And I have to say, I'm going to make an incriminating confession here. I have never heard that record. Oh, my God. It's it's so great, but honestly, and it's high up on my list, but I had not listened to it again for years before, before I started um, kind of re-listening to albums for that list. It's, it's just gorgeous. Um, yeah, I don't even know if I have anything coherent say about it. Um, I mean, I have to say, you know, and we're not going to quibble on the pitchfork list too much here, but they have Mezzanine by Massive Attack at number seven. I feel like you got to get Boards of Canada out of there and put Massive Attack. And I would put Massive Attack actually above XO even. I feel like Mezzanine is like one of the sort of touchstone records of that year. 
And actually, yeah, it, it's definitely, it, I mean, I think it was higher on my list. I'm not sure, like, they were both pretty high, but um, I think Mezzanine has the more memorable songs. Right. And I guess when I think back to that year, too, that was just one of those albums that you heard a lot. Like, it's, it is one of those, like, oh, yeah, like, when, you know, if you're going to make the movie of your life and you're going to have the soundtrack that evokes a certain year, you know, Mezzanine would be one of the 1998 albums that would play certainly in my film <laughs> of my life, I feel like. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, it was a time, um, it was sort of, you know, it was a crossover almost between hip hop and electronic music. And, um, you know, there were, there were aspects of it that felt, um, kind of alternative, even if they didn't necessarily sound like alternative music. Um, it just seemed like an album that everyone could agree on. And also an album, like, as you were saying before, that sort of heralds that this kind of new era for, um, for music. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, again, like thinking about 98 for me, you know, we often talk about decades ending like into the, like the, the following decade. And mm-hmm. I think that's often true. Like the 60s didn't really begin until like 1967 or something. People often will say that. But yeah, I feel like in some respects in the 90s, it ended before the 90s actually ended. Like alternative rock, I feel like, was over but, you know, before the end of the 90s. I feel like, you know, like the gangster rap stuff was pretty played out already. And when you hear a record like Mezzanine, like that record almost is like a 21st century record. Like it feels like a record that would become much more commonplace once people started listening to music more on the internet. You know, this idea that, like you said, that it was this sort of crossbreeding of different genres that, you know, wasn't necessarily happening happening as much earlier in the decade. I feel like it was still more tribal maybe with music in 1991, yeah. 92. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the I think it was the internet and Napster that sort of started to, untangle music from people's individual identities. Um, it's hard to, you know, you know what an alternative rock person looks like. I don't know if you know what a trip hop person (laughs) looks like. It sort of, it just had such a wide spectrum appeal. Um, and it, and it didn't necessarily suggest an identity. Right, and it's weird because I feel like the term trip-hop is pretty dated to the 90s, and yet what it's describing isn't. Like, I feel like, you know, that idea of combining hip-hop and electronic music, I mean, that kind of sounds like what pop music became, like, in the next Mm -hmm. century, although people don't call it trip-hop. Like, I feel like trip-hop is a very 90s-sounding term. It's sort of like how disco was a very 70s-sounding term, and but even after that term fell out of favor, dance music was still obviously huge, for you know, forever after that, it, it, people just didn't call it disco necessarily. Um, but uh, so okay, so I want to talk about like our personal sort of favorite records from from '98. But before we get into that, I thought we would start by talking about like the most 1998 record for both of us. And what I mean by that is, is there a particular album for you when you think about 1998? Like you think of this album, which is to say that maybe it's dated. Not necessarily in a bad way, but it just seems to sort of evoke that year more than any other record. Is, is there a particular album like that for you? Yeah, um, I have two. Uh, you were talking about Celebrity Skin um, a, a little while ago, and that's certainly that album for me, besides the fact that it was probably the album I listened to the most that year. Um, but also... It, it was sort of, it was this transitional moment and there, there was kind of, you know, there was a sort of backlash to, to Courtney selling out at least among, um, you know, kind of old school fans, um, on the message boards. Um, and it was, it was really, I remember hearing that Fleetwood Mac was a big influence on the album um, and I was just like, man, like, I can't believe this. Um, <laughs> to me, it was, you know, it was such a betrayal. And then the album was released and I loved it. Um, and I think, you know, it's sort of, 
symbolize a whole kind of um, alt-rock culture kind of growing up and growing out of its sort of narrowness and elitism. Well, and what's crazy about Courtney Love, too, at that time is that not only had she made that transition uh, to, I guess, more of like a glossier sound on Celebrity Skin, but she was also like a real movie star for a couple of mm-hmm. years in the late 90s. Like, in the, she was in The People versus Larry Flint. Uh, I think Was she dating Ed Norton at that time? I feel like she that had happened like in the late 90s. Like she, was a, yeah, she, she had like a very Hollywood was, makeover at that time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, yeah, she had this sort of um, this this sort of deliberate agenda of not being the same person she was in the early 90s. I think, you know, for, for obvious reasons, she had this kind of traumatic past that she wanted to get away from. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, I mean... Um, I think I think she's the ultimate sort of transitional early '90s to late '90s figure because um, you know the she really tried to make the transition, but in a way the transition was always kind of incomplete because she was always the same sort of difficult, erratic um, person. Yeah, it's like she rev- yeah, it's like she kind of became the old Courtney Love after the late 90s, where I feel like people forget the, like how mainstream she was. It seemed like for a while that she was just going to be like an actress. Like she was going to be like maybe a grittier version of like Jennifer Aniston or something. You know, like yeah. it seems kind of funny to say that now, but I mean, it seemed kind of possible at that time uh, for her. Definitely. And I think also the other thing is that at the time, it seemed like there would be more distance between, um, you know, someone who was actually a platinum-selling rock star and a an A-list movie star. It seemed like two totally different worlds in a way that it doesn't necessarily now. Right, totally. You said that there was another album that you would put in this category? Yes. Um, the other one is Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar. Uh, because it was just like the album of the year in terms of controversy, in terms of pissing off your parents, in terms of, you know, um, radical Christian groups protesting it. (laughs) Um, And also, I think, in terms of, um, I I don't know, like the, the early 90s rebellion kind of, curdling into something darker and and more kind of um I don't know I want to say almost narcissistic like it was very kind of inward looking and self-dramatizing and not really engaged with uh the the world at large in the way that I would say a lot of grunge music was right it- did you mean Mechanical Animals? Oh, wait, Mechanical Animals, yeah. Yeah, his, like, Bowie record, basically, like, his very decadent, yeah. like, I'm going to, like, kind of do a Bowie thing combined with my thing. It is, like, his catchiest record. Like, it, you know, like, it has, like, more sugar in it and more swagger and more glam rock, which I think makes it, I, I know for me anyway, that's, like, the record, if I'm going to listen to a Marilyn Manson record, that'd be the one I was most drawn to. But at the same time, like what you were saying about it being a very self-indulgent record and sort of like a version, I think, of like rock stardom that in the early 90s, you know, people weren't really embracing that sort of like decadent side of rock music that was sort of verboten, like with mm-hmm. the Nirvanas and Pearl Jams of the world. And then Marilyn Manson brings it back and it's this sort of exaggerated version of it. And there is an idea that maybe like... He's bringing it back, but it's also like, you know, killing that version of rock music maybe for the last time. I mean, I, I remember the single from that record being called Rock is Dead. I think it was like yes. one of the singles from that. Yeah. So there's a very sort of like, again, almost like end of the century type feel to that record. Like there's sort of like an apocalyptic, like end of rock and roll type vibe with, with that album. And then he, I think that was like a number one record. And then he, like he never came close to being that successful again. 
No, I think, um, well, first of all, I think it was the, the last sort of idea that he had, you know, um, (laughs) I feel like after that, um, in the 21st century, he kind of went back to, you know, this kind of like goth industrial pastiche that he's been doing ever since. Right. Um, but it's it's almost like for a while, it seemed like he could sort of break out of that. I don't know, like, um, I don't like weird high school kid kind of niche and, and be a really good actual rock star. Um, and, and that was the album. I think also, um, Hole and Marilyn Manson toured together either that year or the next year. Well, well, it's funny, too, because as you were just talking about, this kind of made me feel like, in a way, they had a, you know, Marilyn Manson and Courtney Love had similar arcs and that they kind of evolved into a more glamorous type image at the end of the 90s. And then they kind of reverted back to their more sort of, I guess, classic or you could maybe say a cliche image, like forever after that. You know, like they, like they kind of became this thing and then they went back, they kind of reverted a little bit after the end of the 90s. Um, yeah, it's yeah. interesting um, because I think uh, I think it all comes back to that idea that sort of um, music music was evolving and becoming kind of lighter. That was around the time that Britney Spears and boy bands were starting to come out, um, and you know, ev- everyone I think started to try to become less of a bummer, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think, uh, some people will always be kind of a bummer and that's their, that's the deal. Um, I know it's like, you know, people were being less of a bummer in the late nineties because they had no idea what was coming at them in the two thousands. Like the two thousands were like, okay, you thought life was rough in the nineties. Just wait till the two thousands hits. That's when we start having wars and, you know, uh, economic downturns and all that. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think it was, um, I think both of those albums are really reflective of the decadence of that time that I don't think we realized, um, was, was decadence when we were living it. Right. It just seemed like real, you know, like regular life. And there was certainly more decadence in the music industry too, because it was, mm-hmm. I mean, that was boom times in the late Hey guys, we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. I just want to tell you about something I'm really excited about, which is the release of my new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes out May 8th, and it's available for pre-order right now from wherever you like to buy books. Twilight of the Gods is about rock stars and how they all seem to be retiring or even dying right now. If you're like me, you grew up listening to Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, and The Stones, even though it's been years, even decades, since those groups were in their primes or even still together. How has this music endured for so long, and what is the attraction of classic rock culture, and what impact did it have on the world? And what will happen to the music now that so many stars are exiting the stage permanently? My book covers all these things as well as, well, a lot of other cool stuff about artists like Neil Young, Bob Seger, Bruce Springsteen, Paul McCartney, Black Sabbath, ACDC, uh, there's a little bit about Ario Speedwagon in there. Uh, there's a Fish chapter in there. There's Pearl Jam. There's Wilco. Ah, man, there's like a million bands covered in this book. So if you like this podcast, you're going to like the book. Just go to wherever you buy books and punch in Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It comes out May 8th. Pre-order it now. Okay, enough shilling. Let's get back to our conversation. For my most 1998 album, I cheated a bit. I didn't pick like an actual album. I made a playlist of every number one song on the on the alternative charts in 1998. Because for me, really, you know, this was an era as much about singles as it was about mm-hmm. albums, especially in rock music. I mean, there was still the possibility in the late 90s that a rock band could have a song that was huge and, and be all over the place. And... You know, this playlist includes Sex and Candy by Marcy Playground, The Way by Fastball, Closing Time by Semisonic, Iris by The Goo Goo Dolls, Inside Out by Eve Six, One Week by Bare Naked Ladies, 
celebrity skin by Hole, which we've talked about. Funny enough, it wasn't Malibu. Malibu wasn't a number one song. I, I would have guessed it would have been Malibu. Malibu but yeah, was, that's crazy. It was the title track. Slide by the Goo Goo Dolls, the second Goo Goo Dolls song. Uh, Fly Away by Lenny Kravitz. Never There by Cake. And What It's Like by Everlast. Now, I probably like maybe a third of those songs, but like every single one of them is burned into my brain, like just yeah. branded, I think more than any actual album, certainly more than any album that I would say I love. Um, just because yeah, I worked at a newspaper, my, my college newspaper in 98, and we would listen to crappy alternative radio and these songs were just burned into my brain. Um, so for me, like these songs just totally define that year. And, you know, to me, it is you know, what, what these songs kind of represent is like, I think, an end of maybe a certain kind of innocence era, maybe in, in rock radio or an alternative rock. I mean, I think that there was a pretense to alternative music that it was sort of quirky. And mm -hmm. uh, even if like by 98, it had been totally corporatized and the quirkiness was basically a facade, you know, there was sort of like a... I don't know if nerdy is the right word, but a lot of these bands did have kind of like a bookishness to them uh, that I think by the following year was was largely gone because by then you started seeing Creed and Limp Bizkit and a lot of those yeah. bands that I think were more like, I, you know, I think the difference between like a band like Creed and like a lot of the alternative bands is that Creed was first and foremost a hard rock band. Whereas I think a lot of the sort of grunge and alternative bands certainly had hard rock influences, but they associated themselves sort of philosophically maybe more with like something not quite as macho, you know, and that went yeah, up the window after Yeah, that. I mean, I think what was missing was was punk. There was none of that right. kind of, um, I don't know, rebellious instinct. Like with Creed, you know, they were thinking about God most of the time, so... Um, it was actually pretty pretty reverent as opposed to irreverent. Right, exactly. And and you know, singing about God and also take and just the posturing of a band like that, you know, mm -hmm. very strong, like just projecting strength, you know, which is like a very that's more of like a hard rock thing than an alternative thing. Alternative often was about projecting weakness or at least like strength through weakness. Um, you know, even a band like the Goo Goo Dolls you know, who by 98 were a totally just slick pop band. You know, they had mm -hmm. their roots as a punk band, like in the late 80s. I mean, they were, they basically started out as like a, like a replacements imitator. And mm -hmm. as the, as the decade went on, they learned how to play the game where by 98, you know, they were recording power ballads that were in Meg Ryan movies, you know, which is the song Iris, which is right. in the movie, I think it's called City of Angels with her and Nicolas Cage. Uh, yes, based I, on Wings of I Desire. remember uh, the music video with the Goo Goo Dolls guy um, in that like shiny um, burgundy leather uh, blazer or something. <laughs> right. um, and I think and he I was think like he's all sitting down had, the whole time. And he has I tons of makeup on, and like uh, he's like really glammed up. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it was it's. It was strange. Um, yeah, I remember them before that album, too, and it was just, it was like they had become another band, and I think that was a big thing then, that people just kept trying things, um, you know, until they got a hit, and then that hit would be their only hit, or one of their two hits, or... Um, you know, it was. It wasn't very. I think authenticity was so was so valued in the early '90s, uh, and in the late '90s, people would rather. It, it was more important to look the part than than to have any sort of genuineness. Well, and I think too that you know they've that labels figured out that like it didn't really matter anymore that you know if you had a song on the radio that you know was catchy and it got played a lot and it was in people's faces you know they were going to buy the record it did, right. didn't really matter if you know 
you were into Fugazi and you toured with Mike Watt and you did all that stuff. You know, people didn't really mind. And it was also still the era where if you had one song, if you're Marcy Playground and you have Sex and Candy, I don't know if anyone has ever heard another Marcy Playground song. You know, that might be the only song that anyone's ever heard from that band. Um, but they still had to buy the record, you know? Like they had to hi- mm-hmm. buy the whole CD. So, you know, like a band like Fastball, for instance, which people don't really remember now, but they had like multiple hits uh, in the late 90s, and their record went platinum, you know? Yep. And, and they all sounded like the way. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> although that one song, Out of My Head, was turned into like that song, that, that Camille Cabello song with uh, Machine Gun Kelly. I can't remember oh, the name yeah. of it. But they took the chorus of that and they turned that into a hit. So Fastball lives on uh, through yeah. in, in pop music. Um, so let's talk about our favorite records. You know, I asked you to pick like your favorite record of 98. And I know you turned in a ballot for that Pitchfork story. So I'm sure you have that handy. Like what is, I guess, your favorite album of that year? Um, so it took me kind of a long time to, to settle on this. Um, but I finally came to... Uh, is this desire by PJ Harvey? Um, I just have I bought it when it came out, um, and I've been listening to it pretty regularly ever since. Which I can't really say of that many albums. See, and this is a very intriguing pick for me. And and by the way, this album did really well on the Pitchfork list. I think it was number ten on the list, which surprised me a little bit. Just because, like, I love PJ Harvey, but I usually think of Is This Desire as the record between To Bring You My Love, which was, you know, a really big record for her in 95, and then uh, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea in 2001, which is my personal favorite PJ mm-hmm. Harvey record. And Is This Desire to me has always been, like, the record in between there. So, like, why is this the record for you? I mean, you said you've gone back to it a lot. Like, why do you love this record? Yeah, I mean, first of all, just, PJ Harvey, I don't know if anybody had as as good a run of albums um, in the 90s as PJ Harvey. Um, and beyond. So, sorry? And, and I was going to say, and beyond the 90s. I mean, like, is there like a bad PJ Harvey record? I'm trying to think. Like, I, I don't think so. There there are a few that aren't incredible. Like, like White um, Chalk maybe is like okay. White Chalk, uh-huh, her was good, but not amazing. Um, yeah. Um, but, but definitely in the 90s, she was like just throwing fastballs every time out, like just on fire. So like... Yeah. So um, like, and, and so is this desire for me, um, is a song that is, a, is an album that really evokes a sense of place. Um, she's sort of... The, the sound of it is very kind of windy and ethereal and she's singing a lot about saints and castles and um, to me it's sort of like a very I don't know English Moors kind of immersive experience I guess Um, I find it to be a really wistful album and also maybe of all her albums the one that just sounds kind of the prettiest right i was gonna say like in a way you could maybe make a comparison between that and the boatman's call by nick cave and the bad seeds which came out the Mm -hmm. year before were kind of like pj harvey like nick cave was doing these sort of fire and brimstone type rock and roll records and i think pj harvey i just think of like those early 90s records she did with steve albini just being really sort of uh raw and cathartic and then for her to mm-hmm. make a record like that, which is like you said, like it's, it is sort of like a, like an English countryside record or, or like a pretty record. It, it kind of showed that she was capable of doing something other than that sort of raw rock and roll thing. Yeah, definitely. And it was also, um, you know, there were sort of subtle electronic elements to it, um, so that sort of dates it to 1998. But I think. Um, it it never really started to sound old in the way that some of those kind of early rock electronic fusion albums have become. 
Right. All right, guys, we're going to get back to this conversation here in a minute. I just want to tell you about another sponsor for today's episode, and that is our friends at Blind Tiger Record Club. Now, what is Blind Tiger Record Club? It is a final record subscription box service delivered to your door each month. You pick from all kinds of different styles, like alternative, singer, songwriter, rock, jazz, soul, blues, whatever you like, and they mail your record selection out at the end of each month. All the vinyl is new, all the 12-inch records are new, some are double albums, they're heavyweight, and some of them are even hard to find in port records. The best part of it is the service. Their selections are announced prior to shipping, giving customers the option to choose which album they want each month. Now, subscriptions to the Blind Tiger Record Club start at $25.99. But for listeners of this podcast, we have a special deal. You use the code CELEBRATION at the checkout to receive 50% off your first subscription box. The minimum subscription is three months, so the first box is half off, then the following two will be the full price at $25.99. So again, subscribers get member pricing and free shipping on items added to their monthly box. Again, that's the Blind Tiger Record Club, your vinyl, your choice. All right, now let's get back to the podcast. My favorite record of that year is an album that I feel like some people might put in the like 1998-sounding category. Uh but for me, it's been a record that I've lived with for you know the last 20 years. And like you with uh, Is This Desire, like this is the album from 98 that I return to the most. Like I listen to this record all the time. It's probably the, like one of my favorite writing albums of all time. Um, and it's uh, Moon Safari by Air. And I actually wrote an appreciation of this record earlier this year. And, you know, I feel like this record often gets classified uh, as, a, as a nostalgia record, you know. And there are mm-hmm. elements of it that sound you know, sort of like a version of like 1960s, you know, music. I, I, I think like for me, like I think about like the, the film 2001, A Space Odyssey, when this album's on, you know, you think of sort mm-hmm. of like the loungy uh, instrumental music that was really big at that time. Um, but for me, I think part of the appeal of this record, um, in addition to, I guess, just sort of in a way, the facelessness of air, you know, like I, I, like when I, like for the longest time, like before I wrote that uh, appreciation about this record for Uproxx, like I didn't really know anything about the background of this record. Like I sort of intentionally didn't delve deep into the history of it because I just wanted, because to me, like the music was all that mattered. Didn't like the mythology mm-hmm. of the band didn't matter. Um, to me, like this music doesn't evoke like my childhood because it didn't sound like that. To me, this album is more about evoking just the feel of um of heartache of of the heartache that you feel when you think about your own past so it's not really like for me the music isn't nostalgic it's almost like about nostalgia if that makes sense like, yeah that does make sense um for me that album um which i think i also bought at the time um and liked a lot um is totally is like inextricably connected um, to the soundtrack that Air did for the Virgin Suicide. Right. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's true for me, too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's sort of... Um, and I think that's that's a decent metaphor for the way it works. It's sort of, um, you know, that music, that movie was seeing the 70s through the lens of the late 90s. Um, but you were kind of always aware you weren't immersed in the seventies. You were, you were looking at the past from the vantage point of, of the present. Um, yeah. It's, and I think that music does a really good job of capturing that kind of wistfulness and nostalgia. Right. And, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great connection to make. Cause like when you watch that movie, it's not necess- even if you weren't alive in the seventies, you understand the feelings that that evokes because it's about memory. It, it's it's mm-hmm. not about like the, a specific era. It's just like how we remember things, how they get romanticized and how they get changed around. And I don't know, this is just like one of those records that like I feel like has become part of my inner monologue in a way. Like mm-hmm. it's been absorbed into my brain and uh, there's a certain things like when I think about them, this album plays in my brain. And I feel like there's really no higher compliment you can pay a record than to say that it's mm-hmm. actually been sucked into your, you know, cerebellum, you know? <laughs> so I feel yeah. like, so like, so, you know, and it's weird because like, I feel like when people talk about great records, they always have to be like very heavy sounding records. They have to, they have to almost be painful 
in some way. And I think that there is some of that heartachy feeling, feeling on this record, but there's a lightness to it that I think is a little deceptive. And I feel like that causes it to get underrated slightly, you know, although it's definitely held up as one of the great records of that, of that time. Um, but I don't know, I feel like sometimes people slot it in as sort of like a, you know, like a fizzy, fun, diversion type record. And I think there's actually more heaviness going on in that record than maybe it gets credit for. So that's yeah, definitely. I, I think so too. I think, um, when I think about that record, I think of sort of, you know, like the hottest, stillest day of summer, um, <laughs> where, you know, everything looks beautiful, but it's becoming a little bit oppressive. Right. Um, or it's beautiful, but there's like something kind of dark underneath it, and you can't really put your finger on it, but it's there, and it's yeah, just sort of lurking. Yeah, there's a danger somewhere. Um, <laughs> right. You could get heat stroke. Right, right. Um, let's talk about records that we love from this year that um, maybe don't get a lot of attention, because, you know, obviously both the records that we just talked about, they were both in the top ten, I think, of Pitchfork's list. I think they're both generally considered you know, at the top of the line when people talk about records from 1998. Are there any, is there a particular album for you that you think is, is like a great record, but maybe doesn't end up in these conversations a whole lot? Yeah. Uh, I was shocked and scandalized um, <laughs> that, that Garbage's version 2.0 didn't make the Pitchfork list. Yes. Um, to me, that was such an obvious pick um, and such such an important album um, for for the kind of late '90s transformational period. I think um, it was it was an album where the kind of where an alternative band um, and even you know with Butch Vig uh, being being in Garbage, um, this sort of you know central figure um, in in grunge kind of lost that that genre piety and and created something new and um embraced electronic music um and also really pop yeah it, it, butch was actually on my podcast and we talked about garbage a lot and you know they it's interesting you know cuz they don't get their due a lot of times where for for just on one hand, being this great pop band, but on the other hand, there's always an element of experimentation in their music, and 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 you know, combining noise and electronic music and and sort of like industrial type rock with this great pop sense in a way where you don't even notice sometimes some of the abrasive things that are going on, and uh, you know, version 2.0, great record. It's like. Do you think that's better than the first record? I go back to it more. Um, I'm I'm not sure. I like I like the first record a lot, but I don't think it was as original as the second album. Um, I think to me, the first garbage album sounds like a really good version of a lot of the sort of late grunge era stuff. Right. Um, and version 2.0, I think, was legitimately groundbreaking. So that's a great record. Definitely a great singles record. It's sort of weird that there, that there weren't any garbage songs on that 1998 playlist that I made. I'm surprised that, there were, that they didn't have a number one alternative hit that year because I feel like they were still ubiquitous on the radio. I guess they were probably in the top five. A bunch. Yeah, they really were. I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly when all the singles were released, but I remember that there were just so many of them that maybe just one never kind of got a foothold. Um, but I think there were like five or six singles on that album, which is like half the album. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Garbage, uh, by the way, had uh, a number, their number one hit was number one, Crush, which I think was the single. On the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack that came out right before version 2.0. So that was, was that was that in '99? 1997, oh, January 4th, uh, 1997. Okay, was number one. Uh, okay, there we go. So my my I guess sleeper underrated record uh, is a record I think that you 
put on your on your ballot because I think you put your ballot on Twitter and I saw it. Um, but it's one of my very favorite albums of this year, and it's How Does It Feel to Be Something On by Sunny yeah. Day Real Estate. And I feel like, you know, um, I think people who are in the know <laughs> with indie rock value this record, but I don't know. I, I To me, this is the best Sunny Day Real Estate record. I think it's like one of the best emo records ever made. Um, it's one of the great rock records, I think, of this time. Um, you know, it was a record that, Sunny Day made after they were on this hiatus uh, for a while. I guess they were essentially broken up, actually, after making Diary and then you know, imploding on their second record, uh, LP2. And this album sort of ended up being a happy accident where they got back together and they were able to produce this record uh, that I think kind of realized what Jeremy Enoch was trying to do, which, which I think on one hand was making this sort of punk emo-type record, but at the same time, sort of aspiring to the emotional grandiosity of U2, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of anthemic quality that you would hear on the Joshua Tree or something. And on this record, um, I think he totally pulls it off. And what compels me to call this record underrated, I guess, you know, it's sort of inspired by another record I guess we're going to talk about, uh, which is Neutral Milk Hotels in the Airplane Over the Sea. I feel like when people mm-hmm. talk about a record made by a reclusive, religious-minded loner uh, who made this ecstatic-sounding rock record. They talk about In the Airplane Over the Sea, and they don't talk about how it feels to be something on. And I would argue that the Sunny Day Real Estate record is actually much better than the Neutral Milk Hotel record. Um, I mean, it's funny to me about Neutral Milk Hotel because I actually really like that record. I think it's a very good indie rock record, but it's sort of like being at a party and you meet this person, and they have long hair and a beard and white flowing robes and sandals, and they're like, hello, my name is Jesus. And you meet them, and you're like, wow, this Jesus guy's pretty, pretty cool. I like this Jesus person. And then all of a sudden, you realize that everyone else is worshiping this person, and you just thought it was just a guy. But then you realize <laughs> that people think he's actually the savior, and you're like, well, wait a second. He's just a guy. He's not the savior. And there's sort of a disconnect there. Um, that's my tortured analogy for that record. I just feel like the, what's been projected onto that album seems a little much for me. So I get, yeah. I'm, I'm in this position where I think it's a very good record, but I don't think it's like this sort of masterpiece that people uh, have called it. And I would actually argue again that I think the Sunny Day Real Estate record is better. Um, what's your take on all that? I know you're, you're a big, that you like the Sunny Day Real Estate record, but you also like the Neutral Milk Hotel record. Like, what's your take, I guess, on what I just said? Yeah, I mean, I I love both of them. I do think, in a lot of ways, they're really similar albums in that they're both very spiritual albums. Obviously, the Sunny D Real Estate is a lot more traditionally Christian, whereas, um, you know, Neutral Milk Hotel is bringing in kind of Eastern, Western mysticism and Anne Frank and all this other stuff. <laughs> right. Um, but I would say, you know, I never had the opportunity to encounter uh, the Neutral Milk Hotel album before there was some sort of mythos around it. Um, and I think that's a really important difference. I would... I would be really curious to know um, how how people over versus under like 35 think about that album because I think it would be pretty different. It's like you were talking about like meeting Jesus and thinking he was cool. Um, I feel like I sort of heard heard from the worshipers who are at that party. Um, about Jesus, and I never kind of had a sense, uh, had a chance to judge him for myself, if that makes sense. Right. It was always um, this sort of like holy type record, like from the moment you yeah, heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I, the, the first time I heard it, I think, um, was just someone was like, you've got to hear this. Um, and, you know, I had sort of been told that it was going to be very meaningful to me, and in fact, it was. Um, so I think, in part, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy 
there. Um, I also think that the Sunny Real Estate album doesn't get the acclaim that it deserves because people who are really sunny day real estate people tend to be diary people. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's I think that's definitely true. Like there's I feel like that's maybe changing a little bit, but yeah, if you know, in terms of like emo rock lists, like when people make the album like the the list of the best emo albums ever, diaries always at the top and right. how it feels to be something on isn't maybe even on the list. You know, it's interesting about Neutral Milk Hotel because, you know, I called it overrated. I don't. That's sort of a stupid thing to say in a lot of ways. I mean, who you know, who knows how things are rated and it's all in the eye of the beholder and all that. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, people have connected on the, uh, to that record on a very intense level. And in my memory of it is that that actually happened. I think fairly quickly. I remember like I lived with um, this girl who like was inscribing lyrics from that album into her journals in 1998. Like it, it, it had that sort of power for people already, I think, the people who were really into it. And then from there, you know, the mythology just spread. Um, I mean, I remember seeing Jeff Mangum on his uh, solo tour. This was maybe five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember going into the show thinking, I really like Neutral Milk Hotel. I love, I, you know, and I really like In the Airplane Over the Sea. And then I went to that show, and there were people like weeping during the songs and like screaming along to the songs. And it was a, just a tremendously emotional experience for people, and it was amazing to see. But it was also kind of alienating because I realized that, oh wait a second, I don't like this record as much as these other people. <laughs> like this record, it's just something I like, but it, it it's not a way of life for me. But it really is for a lot of people, and it does have that kind of uh, power. And I've found that, like, if you besmirch this record in any way, you know, on Twitter or something, or on this podcast, I'm sure I'll hear from people who will be angry <laughs> that I called it overrated. Um, you know, people get angry. I mean, they're very protective of this album, and I and I totally understand that. And you know, it goes back to what you were saying about how you encounter something and how it affected you, and and when it affected you in your life. Um, and it, it did become, I think, one of those rite of passage albums for people where they experienced it when they were 14 or 15, maybe someone handed it to them and it like changed their life, you know, when they heard it. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, that's definitely, I was a little bit older. I was maybe 17 the first time I heard it. Um, but it did, it did kind of come with these, life-changing expectations, but I also think it's important that it's sort of a song about childhood and innocence and innocence lost, and I think at a certain time in your life, um, I think for me it was college, you really identify with this, this idea that you're leaving childhood behind um, and and that there's something kind of spiritual and scary um, and even, I don't know, like gross, disgusting about it um, that I think that album really nails. Like, when I listen to it now, um, I have a very sentimental attachment to it, but I don't feel connected to it as intensely as I did when I felt like it expressed everything that was going on in my mind. Right, right. And to come at an album like that and say, like, well, maybe it's just okay, it's sort of like saying, like, I'm going to set your teddy bear on fire, you know, that you slept with your entire childhood. You know, people get... Right, absolutely. Even if they feel like you just said where I don't feel as connected to it anymore it still meant a lot at a certain time of your life and you you don't really get over stuff like that. Yeah, totally. And I, I think after a while, um, your emotional connection to it is kind of that you're sad that you're not the person you were when you first heard it. It's sort of like um, the Polar Express with the bell um, and like the saddest day of your life is when you can't hear this kind of magical 
sell anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the magical bell of albums. It but, is. But you know what? How it feels to be something on is better than the magical bell. I'm going to say <laughs> that right now. Uh, Judy, you know, we flew through this, man. We, I think we're out of time. Okay. So thank you yeah. so much for coming on. It, it was so fun talking about 1998 with you. Thanks for having me on. This is super fun. Great. Well, Judy, thanks again. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Hey, take care. All right, that was me and Judy Berman talking about 1998. Had a great conversation, went down memory lane, talked about some great records, talked about some not-so-great records, talked about Neutral Milk Hotel. I'm sorry if I offended you. I just want to say again, I like Neutral Milk Hotel. I like In the Airplane Over the Sea. I think it's a fine album. Not the best album. Not a religious experience, at least not for me. If it is for you, I apologize. I just don't want Neutral Milk Hotel people coming up to me in the street, beating me up, because I said unkind things about In the Airplane Over the Sea. We can all be friends. We'll just disagree about this album. Um, Guys, thanks again for listening. Uh, You know, we wouldn't have a podcast without your support, so I really appreciate you listening and uh, leaving reviews for us on iTunes. A lot of you have been doing that lately. I know I bring this up every week. But, you know, stuff like that, reviews, you know, nice things on uh, Twitter, you know, nice Facebook posts, all those things help grow the podcast. So all the support you've given us, it's very much appreciated. Got to give a shout-out, as always, to my man Derek Madden for putting everything together. And, of course, to Josh Copperman for writing our theme song. Thank you guys so much. Well, that's another episode of Celebration Rock. We will talk to you again next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.